A diaphragm pacing system is an alternative to mechanical ventilators for patients with Lou Gehrig's disease. What do physicians need to know about implanting a DPS? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and joining us to discuss what doctors should know about diaphragm pacing systems for ALS patients is Dr. Raymond Anders, Associate Professor of Surgery at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in Cleveland, Ohio. He's also Director of Minimally Invasive Surgery at University Hospital's Case Medical Center. Dr. Anders, welcome to ReachMD. Thanks for having me here today. So can you briefly explain the breathing challenges faced by a patient with ALS? As we all know from either reading Tuesdays with Maury or our own experience with patients with ALS, they all basically die from respiratory failure. Eventually, they can't have enough air go through their lungs that they'll start developing increased CO2 levels. And so that's their end result for almost all patients with ALS. Our only present therapies for patients with ALS is a drug called Realutech, which increases survival by about three months, and BiPAP, or non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, which helps to, to take away that breathlessness, helps with nighttime sleep dysfunction that most patients with ALS have. We developed a diaphragm pacing system to try to maintain diaphragm strength, and through several studies have shown in the preliminary results that we have been able to maintain diaphragm strength and help patients breathe better in their long term. And for our physician audience that's not familiar with treating ALS patients, how quickly does this breathing issue happen and how does it progress? Patients will lose 1% to 3% of their predicted force vital capacity every month. So if you start at 100%, you're slowly declining. Most patients won't feel that they're short of breath until they're somewhere between 50 and 70% force vital capacity because of our tremendous reserve. Plus, patients with ALS are no longer running or doing much physical activity, so they won't really notice that they've lost some of their ability to breathe. And so we actually, many times when they first see a physician that, that sees patients with ALS or goes to an ALS clinic sponsored by ALSA or MDA, well, they have a pulmonary function test to identify that they are having problems breathing. Many times they may get a sleep study that shows that they're having central sleep effects at night. At that point in time, some therapies are recommended. Again, the only therapy that we presently have is non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. The newer therapies that is in FDA trials in the United States, although already approved in Europe, is the diaphragm pacing system, which may be just another tool in our ability to help patients with ALS breathe longer. So tell us a little bit about the physiology and anatomy of this breathing breakdown for ALS patients. What occurs in ALS is we initially thought that they would just be losing their phrenic motor neurons. Again, our initial look was just at the diaphragm controlled by the phrenic motor neurons in C3, 4, and 5. But we've also found that many of these patients have just lost control. So they have motor neurons with an intact axon to a motor unit of the diaphragm. When we initially started doing surgeries on these patients, we could literally see partially denervated areas of the diaphragm. Once you lose a motor neuron and the axon to a strip of the muscle of the diaphragm, we can never stimulate that electrically. It's kind of an interesting aspect as if a phrenic nerve is cut, we can't stimulate the diaphragm. Once you lose all the axons and motor neurons, the diaphragm can't be stimulated. But what we found in many patients is that there may be a group of motor neurons that actually don't drive for respiration. Therefore, it becomes more like our spinal cord injured patients that are, is true upper motor neuron disease, and we can stimulate that diaphragm and maintain ventilation. So tell us a little bit about the diaphragm pacing system. Where was it invented? How long has it been around? And what is it used for? It was actually 
invented here in Cleveland, Ohio, where I'm based out of, with a group of engineers out of uh, Case Western Reserve Medical School and the engineering department, along with myself, that's been working on this project for over a decade now. What we found is that we could actually, with laparoscopic surgery, again, at the time this was being developed as minimally invasive surgery, was really coming to the forefront, is that where we can put a TV camera in, see the diaphragm, I actually, one of my most common operations is doing an anti-reflux operation where I'm sewing a hiatal hernia, so I'm sewing the diaphragm together. And Tom Mortimer, who is my mentor in this, is the engineer that really began this project, came in and watched an operation and began having some ideas of how we could put these electrodes on the diaphragm using minimally invasive surgery. So the surgery itself is done by really any laparoscopic surgeon, and we put this on the, the skill level. This is about as difficult as doing a laparoscopic gallbladder operation, which is done over 500,000 times a year in the United States. So walk us through that surgical procedure. What are you looking for? How do you test the right places to hook the electrodes up? What else do you do? It's interesting. We we do this laparoscopically, so it's a typical laparoscopic operation. I put a TV camera by the belly button. I then put three other small incisions. The key aspect of this technology is I have to map the diaphragm. I have to see how the diaphragm moves when we stimulate this to put the electrode in the right spot. We then implant the electrode, and that allows us to move the diaphragm, just like if you were thinking of you know, breathing on your own. Once we do this operation, the system is an external one, so the electrodes come out. Many patients with ALS, which has really become one of our own aspects of putting this in, require a feeding tube, a peg tube. And we can actually do this at the same time as a feeding tube, so they're really getting the two operations at the same time, the feeding tube plus their diaphragm pacing system at the same time, which, again, simplifies this. When we began this project, there literally it was no anesthesia literature about doing general anesthesia on ALS patients. It basically said if an ALS patient needs surgery, the patient's going to do very poorly and die. It's just uh, two case reports of a total of four patients. What we've now just recently published is our large experience of doing general anesthesia in ALS, saying that it is safe to do general anesthesia. So hopefully, uh, most patients with ALS won't be denied surgery for other reasons because of this old literature saying it was dangerous to do surgery in patients with ALS. So tell us about this. You said you have to map the diaphragm. How does that happen? What are you doing to get that map completed? What we developed is a suction cup electrode. And so I put a suction cup on the diaphragm and I stimulate this. I can see the diaphragm contract and I can also quantitatively measure a number. As our diaphragm contracts with laparoscopic surgery, we have air in the abdominal cavity. So I'll see a rise in that pressure. So we've developed a little computer terminal or clinical station that will tell me a number. The higher the number, the stronger the contraction. Now I'll put my electrode in the spot where I get the best contraction of the diaphragm. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and joining me to discuss what doctors should know about diaphragm pacing systems for ALS patients is Dr. Raymond Anders, Associate Professor of Surgery at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine and Director of Minimally Invasive Surgery at University Hospital's Case Medical Center. So typically, how many electrodes are you implanting, and is it more or less for some patients? Well, what we initially, and this is one of those interesting things of research, is that I initially decided to put two electrodes in each diaphragm in case one broke. I'd have a backup. The electrodes were developed by one of our graduate students called Peterson. It's a great little electrode. It's 14 stainless steel wires, double helix around each other. We've never had an electrode break in a patient after over 100 cumulative years of use. But what I then found when I started programming it, for each electrode I can program at a different frequency, pulse width, 
pulse duration, and I became more like an ophthalmologist. And I would ask the patients, do you like number one or number two better? And so I began using both electrodes to get a very smooth contraction of the diaphragm where the patients felt it was just like their own breath. They wouldn't feel anything. So I now use both electrodes so that I can kind of get a much smoother contraction for the patient. So we're able to program it to the patient's benefit where they can feel it. And it allows us to actually uh, help these patients in the long term. As a patient with ALS begins weaker and weaker diaphragm function, we start increasing our settings to try to get more contraction of this slowly dying muscle. What type of training is required for a surgeon to learn to implant this system, and how long would it take? Now, this is one of those key things with FDA studies. Does it require additional training? So in our initial FDA trial for spinal cord injury, we showed that actually the first case that any surgeon did was actually at the same time period with the same morbidity as myself, who had done most of these cases uh, worldwide. So in our FDA uh, category for implanting is it just requires a proctor, somebody to watch that surgeon. This has to be a surgeon, though, that already does laparoscopic surgery. It really is on the difficulty level just as difficult as doing a laparoscopic gallbladder operation, which is done very frequently in the United States. So it's not that difficult to do. We do have a, a program where myself or some other trained surgeon that's done a few of these goes and watches the first surgeon doing it to make sure that they follow the same techniques that have been shown to work in these patients. And what's the profile of the ALS patient that's a good candidate for DPS? Are they all good candidates or does it depend? It's interesting. I mean, ALS is a terrible disease. I mean, we have no other therapies for it. What we're doing with ALS is we're delaying their death. We're delaying a, their death from respiration problems. These patients still lose their ability to communicate. They become locked in. What we're now found in our patients is that most patients with ALS would choose to die when they could no longer breathe. In the United States, only about 3% of patients choose to have a tracheostomy and go on positive pressure ventilation. It's much higher in certain other countries, especially like Japan, where most people go on ventilators. The cost for a ventilator is over $150,000 a year. So many patients, based on cost or based on discomfort, choose not to have that. What we found in our patients now, though, is that they choose to die when they can no longer communicate. So we've changed the way they die, which is something we didn't expect. It's actually a very interesting ethical problem that we're finding and that we tell our patients beforehand is that they at least have to have a system set up that if they choose that they can't communicate, that somebody may turn off our system that's allowing their diaphragm to breathe. What's the cost difference between this implantable DPS and a ventilator? A ventilator costs about $150,000 a year. A ventilator really changes everything. If you're on a ventilator, you're dependent on electricity. We actually published an abstract of patients you know, in this hurricane time period that actually lost their electricity when they're on a ventilator. Most of the patients that died at New Orleans in the hospitals were on ventilators and they could no longer handbag them. So if you're a patient at home on a ventilator and any storms coming by, you're worried because your ventilator backup battery is about six hours. Once you have a diaphragm pacing system, it's an internal lithium battery. It's a typical battery that lasts over 500 hours and you can use multiple little batteries to keep this running. It's really not a problem for electricity loss anymore. So it's not only the cost of the ventilator, it's actually the, the difficulty of traveling with a ventilator. For our spinal cord injury patients, it's very difficult to travel on a plane with a ventilator. Once you have our device, you can travel on planes and, and visit things and travel throughout the country much easier. How big is the external battery pack and other mechanical parts of this system? The external battery pack is about the size of a TV remote control. 
so it's fairly small. It's uh, really just powered by a uh, lithium battery. It is a percutaneous system. It actually, the wires are coming through the skin. Again, many of our ALS patients are actually choosing to have their feeding tubes placed at the same time because of their, their lack of their ability to swallow. And so actually, we, they're already having a peg tube at the same time period. So it's two separate little devices coming through their skin. What's the main complications that occur with the implantation of the DPS system? The biggest complication is at the time of surgery, some air may track from our abdominal cavity to the chest. It's carbon dioxide. That's what we use in laparoscopy, and it's just rapidly absorbed. Interestingly, when we looked at the your risk of death from a feeding tube, most patients, when they undergo a feeding tube, if their force vital capacity is below 50% predicted, that there's a 30% 30-day mortality rate. When we looked at our patients that were getting the pacing system and the feeding tube, we had nobody die within 30 days. We found that because we're actually changing the ventilation aspect. Whenever you get sedated, you get posterior lobe collapse, which is kind of the, you know, the pneumonias that people with ALS usually get. When we start pacing a patient, we allow posterior expansion of the air. So therefore, there's less risk of that pneumonia that was the usual cause of death just with a feeding tube. So we actually have a less risk of death by having this newer pacing system at the same time as a feeding tube than the historical feeding tube alone. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Raymond Anders. We've been discussing what doctors should know about diaphragm pacing systems for ALS patients. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and podcast, visit www.reachmd.com. For comments and questions, call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157. And thank you for listening.